Um, we are getting close to being finished with Hebrews. We took the last two weeks off as Lee preached and Bryce preached. Uh, and then we have this Sunday and next Sunday in Hebrews. And that will be uh, the end of our, I believe, 20 sermons in the book of Hebrews. The, the theme has been consistently, hopefully you remember if you've been around, that Jesus is better. That all the things that we might be tempted to turn to, uh, Jesus is better. And, and there's a lot of theology in the book of Hebrews connected to the sacrificial system and the comparison to uh, the old system that the Hebrew people, the Hebrew church here, was tempted to turn back to. And, and a lot about who Jesus was as the, the great and final high priest and the great and final sacrifice and all of these things. And there, there was within that, there was some practical uh, imperatives, we would say. The imperative is, you know, this um, grammar that would, would indicate a command. These are things that you should do. But that's not really what the 12 chapters have been about. But then we get to chapter 13 here, and then boom, 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 there's like a list of some really practical implications of the theology that we've been talking about uh, over the last 12 chapters that the writer or preacher has been talking about. Uh, and these imperatives, as it's, it's always important to remember, are rooted in the indicative. And the indicative is, again, grammar that would indicate what is true. And so we have two points this morning, and that is the imperative and the indicative. We're going to start with the imperatives because we're going to just take this a little bit in order. But we have to recognize that actually the indicative, all of the theology came first for the last 12 chapters. And that order really matters. That the, the call to live in a particular way flows out of what is already true. It flows out of the fact that Jesus is better. And so I think about this. I've, I've, I've told you the story before of uh, soon after getting married, uh, I, I started uh, going on some dates with other women. And, and some folks came to me and said, what, what are you, why, why are you going on these dates? I was like, oh, it's, it's fine. We're, no, we're married. And um, you know, we've got the ring and it's all good, right? No, that's not how it worked, right? That's not what you do. Like you get married, you don't go on dates with other women and it's an implication of being in that kind of relationship. There are significant implications to me being married to Stephanie and they are good and beautiful implications, to be clear. I'm, I'm thankful for that, but I make a lot of decisions in light of that relationship. But I entered into the relationship first and then the, the implications flow from that, Right? That's just natural being in relationship. And so here we see that our relationship with Jesus, that he calls us into as that great high priest, as that great sacrifice, and the fact that he has told us again and again that he is better than anything else that we could turn to for hope or meaning and life. He invites us into relationship with him and he says it matters for our lives. And so we will look here at some, we'll kind of go, go through this list of actually six commands or imperatives, uh, and then we'll look at the indicatives, just be, remind ourselves of what we've been talking about already, right? Let's pray and we'll jump in. Lord, I pray that you would meet us here in this time, that you would allow us to reflect on what it means to be in relationship with you, that our, our whole lives would be changed and shaped by the love that you have for us, that the relationship that you've called us into with you. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So there are six imperatives that we're going to look at. Uh, I'll come, I'll spend a little bit of time on each one, but they are hospitality, remembering those in prison, honoring marriage, 
Not being greedy. Remember leaders and praising God. Don't worry, I'll, I'll, come, I'll come back to them. They're all, though, rooted in verse 1, which, again, builds on the theology that has come from the first 12 chapters, but it says, let brotherly love continue. It's this recognition that the imperatives that are given, they all happen in relationship. So we, we have to continually remind ourselves that we need to be drawn out of the intense individualism that we learn and just kind of swim in the culture around us including in the church, and we're called into relationship. And so all of these imperatives flow uh, in the context of relationship, and they are all an outworking of letting brotherly love continue. These are how we love one another in light of what Jesus has done for us. Then we find ourselves with these different imperatives. The first, verse 2, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, For thereby some have entertained angels unaware. Hospitality, showing hospitality. This this call, don't neglect it, uh, the writer says. And and we can see that that there's a a reference here to probably Genesis 18 and maybe even Matthew chapter 25, Genesis 18. Abraham entertains what turns out to be angels uh, and shows them hospitality. Jesus says in Matthew 25, all these ways in which you've cared for people, you cared for me. I was a stranger and you welcomed me in. And, uh, and these are the contexts in which we find this call to not neglect hospitality. Now, we hear the word hospitality, and oftentimes our, our mind goes to uh, entertaining. You know, fixing a, a nice meal, making it look pretty, having friends over. And, and the reality is those folks will probably invite us back uh, to their house, right? There's, uh, even if it's not explicit, there is some understanding of reciprocity in that, that you know, I'm going to do this for you. You're going to do it for me. And, and that's not like, look, let's have each other in each other's homes, right? Uh, and, and that's good and beautiful. But there's something different going on here. At this time, th- this is welcoming strangers. Don't, don't neglect to show hospitality to strangers. What was going on regularly is those who traveled, uh, they didn't yet have access to Airbnb or Hotels.com. And there weren't a lot of those even in existence to just come upon an inn or, uh, or a place to stay. So people, when they traveled, they would, they would go and they would stay in people's homes, strangers' homes. And, and they wouldn't be, there wouldn't be an expectation of reciprocity because you probably would never see those people again. And so there was this call to sacrificially serve other people, people that you didn't even know. There, there is, again, within the context of all of this, there are implications outside the body of Christ, but there is the context of the body of Christ of relationships with one another. So Christians are traveling through, uh, sometimes missionaries, sometimes not. And there was this call to not neglect hospitality. And in that culture, uh, hospitality would would look often very different than it does uh, in in our own. It would be this overly generous care and and love for folks. I I actually uh, loved reading, I, I quoted from it last week, this book, uh, everything sad is untrue. Daniel Nyeri, who was an Iranian refugee in the 90s, he came as an elementary school student, and uh, he and his family, he and his mom and his sister, and they grew up essentially in Oklahoma, and it was a pretty big shift for him. And uh, he, he talks about hospitality and what happens when, because when they moved here, they didn't have anything, and his mom, who was a doctor, uh, could not be a doctor here, and so they were poor. And he would at times run out of lunch money 
And at that time, he would go to the office and they would toss a bag of crackers at you to make, and it makes you feel like the lowest thing in the world. It's against policy to make a kid go hungry, but you can tell you're not their guest. If you were a guest, you would be treated with kindness and tea and all the best food they could offer. Being generous to a guest is one of the most different things about these countries. In Iran, when a guest comes, you tell them they may be angels. They are welcome, and the whole house is filled with the joy of their presence. And the person always apologizing is the host, that they might have more to offer. But here it seems guests are supposed to apologize all the time that they're taking anything. It's like they think the host is burdened, but I don't understand it. But I know I never want to go to the house of any of these grown-ups who make you beg for so little. It goes on to say, anyway, in Iran... When you go to someone's house, they put out a spread with tea and sweets on a rug, and you sit together, and the host should offer you all the best stuff. A little bit of a, a challenge to think about. And to be clear, it's not like you have to be really fancy, and you have to. The, the idea is that we would actually sacrificially care for strangers. What would that look like for us to sacrificially think of providing the best? And it might mean in particular times, sacrificing in order to open up our own homes to people uh, that need a place to stay or need a a meal, to build relationships there. Some of you have have already heard about what's uh, upcoming for our church, getting connected to passages, Uh, this facility that's opening just down the street. And uh, they're going to be, you're going to hear more and more over the next few weeks as they are hoping to open in the middle of July. You can talk to, uh, um, you talk to Ben or Chris uh, you can uh, learn more to ask me, uh, but we're going to be connecting and building relationships with uh, folks who, a number of the folks at Passages will have intellectual and developmental disabilities, but with the whole, the whole facility, we're hoping to build relationships and care for people and even do that in a sacrificial way. Are there ways that we could uh, maybe join in here that there is a group that serves Meals for the housing insecure in our neighborhood every Tuesday and Friday morning in this very space. What are, what are ways that we could think to sacrificially show hospitality to recognize that there's a call to not neglect it because we're tempted to neglect it? So what would that look like for us? Show hospitality. The second application we see, we could spend a lot of time, a whole lot of time on any one of these, but we're not going to because we're Moving through uh, chapter 13 here. The second is, remember those in prison. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them and those who are mistreated since you also are in the body. This recognition, we're physical beings. You're, you're in relationship with these people who are in prison. And at the time, there were those imprisoned for following Jesus. And when you're in prison, you don't get the three squares a day. It's not... Uh, some, what you needed was actually care from people outside, often even for just for food. And so there's this remember those in prison. And, but here's the thing. So we don't have that exact uh, uh, parallel in today's culture. But I think the key here is as though you were in prison. It's understanding what other people are experiencing that might be different from the way that you're experiencing it. That we would, as, as followers of Jesus, as, as brothers and sisters in Christ, that we would that we would take time to think about what other people are experiencing, and particularly those, in this case, those who are in prison and those who aren't. So to think about what those who are vulnerable, who are struggling, what they're experiencing. 
What is it like for them that we would be intentional to think as though we were in that same situation? What are ways that it might look like for us to, to engage with those around us? Realizing, taking time to think about what they might be experiencing. That it's not always uh, an easy thing to do, but particularly to care for the, the vulnerable, to care for those who are uh, in need. This is particularly important as we're going to talk about leaders and what leaders do later. Matthew 18 tells us that, that a leader is, that their role is significant enough that if they cause a little one to stumble, Jesus says, it's better for you essentially to be drowned. I mean, not essentially, that's exactly what it says, to have a millstone tied around your neck and to be drowned. There's a high calling to care for the vulnerable and those in need. What would that look like for us? Again, passage is, is a way that, that I recognize this week. I'm, I'm not super aware of what's going on with prison ministries, but that would be, though not an exact parallel, something certainly to think about. Our denomination has uh, a ministry, their mission to North America, that, that does all kinds of ministries, but one of them is Metanoia Prison Ministry. And uh, we could find out, we find out about things there. There are all kinds of ways that we want to think. What might it look like for me to care for those who are vulnerable, to care for practical needs? That's what we see here for those caring for those in prison. It's, it's meeting the practical needs of those who are experiencing something different than we are. As we go through these, I think it's helpful to think, what, what are like one or just let's take it small. What are one or two things that I might be able to do different to move forward in God's call on my life? The third one we find, verse four, let marriage be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled. And then there is this this stark and, and at times shocking statement of God's judgment on sexually immoral and adulterous. This is. Uh, this is strong language, right? We find this call to, for all to, to honor marriage, to, to recognize that it, there is value there. It's not to say that all should be married, but it's a, a recognition that, that marriage is given as a part of God's even created order as something that is good and, and beautiful. And that we all honor it whether we're in it or not. This is just picking up on the, the way that God has created the world. Jesus himself notes this in Matthew chapter 18 when he's talking about, uh, sorry, Matthew chapter 19 as he's talking about marriage itself being rooted in the creation of male and female. This is what we find throughout scripture is that marriage between a man and a woman is a good thing for the people of God and for all of his creatures that this is a good and right and beautiful thing. And and it, it is this picture as well One of the reasons it is so good and right and beautiful is it is constantly, all through the Old and into the New Testament, this picture of God's relationship with his people. And that we learn about God and his care for his people through marriage. That doesn't mean in all of these things that there's not brokenness and that there's uh, not times when we have to address that brokenness. But it it says that we're called to, to honor that. And then he very quickly, in this very short span links sex and marriage because that's where it's constantly linked in uh in the scripture is it here again something good and beautiful for the people of god happens in this context that sex is this powerful and good thing given for uh god's creation to happen in a particular place 
And he says this is his good plan for us. Now, I think as we, as we think about uh, this reality, as we think about where uh, we struggle ourselves, we think about where our culture is, this is uh, at times a, a hard truth to hear or to talk about or to think about. What does it mean? And there are long conversations that we could have about this topic. I think the church makes a number of mistakes when it comes to talking about this or just avoiding talking about it is we, we either use biblical guidance as an opportunity to draw lines, the us and the them and us, that we begin to feel superior if we fall within the lines and we judge people outside and we, uh, and we mistreat folks. And this is one that has certainly been the case in, in the church. Another thing that we often do is with uh, stark statements like this, we, we kind of hold our nose and say, yeah, okay, yeah, God wants that. But, uh, you know, instead of saying, God has something good for us, good and right and beautiful, even as we work to understand what that is, that we want to embrace what God has for us, to recognize that there is good in the power of marriage and sex. I've used this illustration before as well, but fire is powerful and really good in the proper context. On my stove or in the, in the grill or uh, in a fire pit, it's beautiful and good for warmth and for cooking a good meal. It is not so good and equally powerful when it is uh, in my couch or in my bed. Like it's, that's a bad place to have fire. It's not good in that situation. And so uh, this recognition that God has something good and right and beautiful, and it is powerful. There's stark language here because there is a recognition that there is power uh, in this reality. The fourth thing that we see after seeing uh, call to hospitality, call to care for practical needs of others, to honor marriage, uh, the fourth is to not be greedy. So Paul Tripp is an author, counselor, theologian, has a lot of really good books. Uh, about counseling, about parenting, about uh, marriage. And one of his books is called Sex and Money. And there's a recognition in the power of these two things. And he's particularly talking about it in the context of a marriage. But it's true in any relationship or any reality that these things are powerful and that we are told constantly by the culture around us that these two things bring fulfillment. They bring flourishing. If, if you have them in the ways that you want them, if you have them enough, that this is where we would find uh, really life or happiness. So there's a challenge here to, to think differently. There's a challenge to, to not be greedy, to recognize the power of money. Here it's referred to not necessarily as greediness, but love of money. Keep your life free from the love of money. And the positive call is to be content, to recognize that what the Lord has for us is right and good. Now, that doesn't mean, to be clear, that we're not thinking about the needs of those around us in particular, that we're not seeking to care for those who don't have enough. We've already seen that with the showing hospitality and the caring for those in prison. We, we actually do think about those around us. We think about caring for the poor. It's why we have a mercy team. It's a very scriptural idea to care for those who don't have enough, who are in need. And to think about how we might be generous in showing hospitality and care for others in the midst of that. But the, the question comes for us, um, and are we loving money? 
We, we don't typically, greed is not one that we typically say, yeah, that's, that's my issue, I'm, I'm, I'm greedy. I, I was challenged this week, I was talking with somebody about some of these issues and uh, asked this question, what, what do you think about when you think about the rich? But maybe this, maybe put it more specifically, when you think about the top 1%, what, what comes to mind? What connotations do you have? Is, is that where the greed maybe probably lies with, with those? Well, if we think about, even if we just take out the context of where we are in history and that the world as a whole is, is wealthier than ever before in the context of history and more access to, uh, to health care. This is not saying it's across the board, every person that exists, but this is generally the case that we live in a, in a more wealthy place than ever before, just the world in general. But we in particular, in our particular context, I, I saw a study that says that if you make more than $60,000 uh, a year, that you are in the top 1% globally. And even if you're not at 60, you're pretty high up there in the scope of wealth in the world. And the point is, we're all wealthy. We're all rich. I mean, that's just the context of, I mean, that's the context of this room. We can always compare ourselves, right? But so the question that we need to deal with is, how do we think about our finances? How do we think about our, is it something that we're not content with? Is it something that we love money too much, that we don't trust in the Lord as my helper? And I recognize it doesn't matter how much money you have. There is a tendency to be anxious about it, for it to bring up all kinds of worry and concern. There are all kinds of, it's just always the case. And, and I've uh, been in enough relationships and done enough pastoral ministry over the years that it doesn't matter if you just have a little bit of money or a lot of money. This is a struggle that we all have. There's a challenge here. And so how, what does it look like to move toward contentment? I think one of the ways that we continually find throughout the scripture is to be generous, to be giving. I mean, to show hospitality to strangers, to have empathy with those who are, are vulnerable, think about what it means to care for them. We have the, the, uh, the call to tithe throughout Scripture, to give generously uh, to the church. There's a question of, do we give? And, and to be clear, I think that the Bible gives us a call to give to the church, where we experience his body and his people. And I don't know what anybody gives. So I'm not, I'm not calling out uh, somebody here, but I think it's, a, it's a, a discipleship question of following Jesus. Do we give generously or do we think this is mine? I earned it. Keep your hands off of it. That's what our culture tells us, that it's mine, that I earned it. But God tells us it's all from him, that he's our helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? This quote from Psalm 118 and 27 and some other places, uh, do we trust in him for our finances? Uh, the fifth uh, call here is to remember your leaders. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God, consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. And then even starker, and I feel a little bit uncomfortable with this as a pastor, as a leader here, obey your leaders and submit to them. For they're keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. But like, you know, uh, the, the writer here thought, um, 
you know, marriage and sex, that wasn't enough to deal with here. So let's deal with church authority and uh, just the idea of authority in a culture that just pushes it aside more and more. What we find in scripture is that authority is for our good. But let's also recognize that authority comes from broken people, that it can be abused, and it has. And let's be honest about that and seek to root that out whenever we can. Let's let's enter into the fact that we have a a plurality of elders, multiple leaders, that it doesn't just lie with me as the pastor, that that we have connections both within this congregation and outside, that, that we want to be leaders who lead with humility and repentance, that we want to step into God's calling from 1 Peter 5, this call to shepherd the flock, that says that, that we would shepherd the flock. This is the call to leaders, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples. And then going on to say, even after calling the, those who are younger to be subject to the elders, Clothe yourselves, all of you, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. The call is for all leaders, all of us, to be humble. That this is the kind of shepherding and leadership and care that should be had. There's warnings against uh, doing it uh, in a domineering way. There's the, the, already the, the quote from Matthew 18, that to cause one of the little ones to stumble, that, that it would be better to be drowned. These are hard calls. Let's recognize in the midst of that that every single church leader for the past 2,000 years and the leaders and the people of God before that were fallible, sinful human beings. And so there is a recognition that mistakes, uh, that there's not perfection in, in leadership. And we, even in this church, as uh, elders have had to uh, apologize, to repent, to confess uh, in the midst of shepherding and, and care. I hope that we would continually be willing to repent and, and do that. But I do think there is this picture that even in light of the mess, even in light of the reality of the fallibility of leaders, that he says that, that there is something good about leadership, that there is something good for the people of God there. And I do think it requires all of us to move in that direction well together. But that we would actually recognize that, that there's something good about authority. And I think we recognize that in a lot of contexts. Parenting, there's something good about authority there. Hopefully we experience that well in the church, that we would uh, step into that and see God's goodness for us there. The last practical Imperative here is verse 15, jumping ahead a little bit, but verse 15. Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Praise God, worship him. I think there's something, there's a picture here of it happening individually, but also corporately. That we together would praise God, that we would worship him. That this flows out of who he is and what he's done and what he's called us into. And that is actually a direct link to what is true. So point to the indicative, what is true? So as we think about this list, we go through this list of, of six things. And we take any one of them, and, and we would, if we're honest, we would say, I haven't fully lived up to that. 
If you take all six and think, oh, I've done this perfectly, it just, it, it doesn't happen. We're not able to do it. This is, this is the gospel. This is why we have the confession that we had earlier, because we can't live up to it. And that is true no matter what our standard is. So some of you have seen uh, the movie, not the movie, the, the TV show, The Good Place. And, and The Good Place uh, is, is a, a sitcom, essentially, about, uh, about what happens when you die. And it uses the, the classic trope that every action that you take either has positive uh, account or negative account. And in the end, if your positive outweighs your negative, then you get to go to the good place. And otherwise, you have to go to the bad place. And uh, as they get into the show, they realize that fewer and fewer people over the history of, uh, of mankind has made it into the good place. And they talk about this fact that, uh, and I think this is true throughout history anyway, is that life is complicated enough that whatever standard you set for yourself, that there are always these unintended consequences so that you, you're not able to do good. And, and their argument is that the more globalization and all of the connectedness happens, the harder it is to do something that's purely good. The example they give is you got a guy, Tom, he goes and buys a tomato, and the tomato supports cheap labor, people not being cared for, climate change, these other things. Uh, and, uh, and so uh, just by buying this tomato, he gets negative to his account without even being fully aware of it, right? The reality, though, is whatever our standard is, we're not going to live up to it. I think that is actually indicative of what is true. We cannot live up to the standard, whether it's even just merely these six things that God calls us to, that if we're honest, we, we know that even taking each one, that we don't fully live up to it. This is where we find ourselves, and we have, what God has told us is there has been a sacrifice made. Jesus is that great sacrifice that offers forgiveness of sins, that he covers this. He covers it. As our helper, again, verse 6, the Lord is our helper. He will provide. And not just the physical needs, but all of them. So that we find that in verse 8, Jesus, the one who is better, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever, that he is the one who, verse 12, all this conversation about sacrifice and food, I don't have time to go into all of it, but there's this picture of Jesus' sacrifice so that we don't have to take these ritual steps. Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. This is a picture, this is a reference to the crucifixion. Jesus went outside, rejected, hung on the cross, his blood poured out so that we might be saved, we might be forgiven. But listen to the language here. If we talk about the theological language of justification and sanctification, justification is that one-time act where God declares us righteous before him. Forgiveness is offered. Done. Complete. Sanctification is a process of God's grace where over time, he makes us more like Jesus. He allows us to more and more put to death sin and live to righteousness. It is an ongoing process. And so as we seek to to actually implement these six practical implications of the gospel, we have to grow in those. But listen to what he says in verse 12. He suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Even sanctification is a work of God, not just justification. It's not we become saved by God's grace and then we got to work really hard to do well and do right. No, God's grace is at work through all of it. 
That is incredibly hopeful, incredibly promising, so that we can come to all the things that God calls us to. We can, we can move forward with great hope that what he has for us is good and right and beautiful, that he wants our flourishing, and that even when it's hard, we can step into it by the power of his work on the cross. Not by anything that we're able to do on our own, because we can't. And so we rejoice in resting and trusting in him.